Oh, yes, those 10 years was kind of hitting me hard being a member of the inaugural class. And we had sort of a nice time to reflect on 10 years. And I keep thinking, oh my God, thinking of 10 years, yikes. Um, so anyhow, I'm very, very grateful and will continue to be so um, to Stanley and Elizabeth for creating this course. And I count myself very privileged to have kind of been a part of that inaugural class and sort of see the program taking shape firsthand. Um, from the MSc program here, um, let me tell you just a little bit about my kind of journey and how my research has been shaped. I took away from the program a very deep and abiding passion for uh, diarrhea. As a <laughs> that may say something about my work as excrement. I, um, I don't know, there's some kind of joke in there. But anyhow, um, so that was one interest that was sparked um, through participation in this program. And beyond that, a larger conceptual idea that uh, in querying how can medical anthropology theory be applied to critiquing public health intervention. And so that's really been the driving force behind my work since leaving this program. So in kind of continuing our conversation about bilingualism, I decided that in order to bring medical anthropology critique to public health, um, in attempting to be a good anthropologist, I needed to become a public health practitioner to understand how um, their concepts were shaped and how their training took place. So I returned to the US and um, underwent public health training. And then I completed a, a PhD in medical anthropology while I was in the States as well. And my dissertation research for that PhD was in Guatemala, so I've enjoyed hearing um, during this time that Daniel and um, Christina are also kind of fellow Latin Americans coming from this program. But in any case, um, that research looked at treatments for childhood diarrhea and a delivery of nutritional supplementation through the primary health care system in Guatemala. So I've continued um, to, to kind of build on that research and broaden that perspective to thinking about how um, primary health care is delivered in a variety of settings, obviously situated in, in Guatemala, and how that care delivery is shaped by the trends and whims of development paradigms. Um, and then kind of the next step on that, kind of the ethnographic piece that I've used throughout is looking at how illness narratives um, are both shaped by and also kind of feed back into health policy. So that's kind of the journey that I've been along. I had the, the good fortune to spend a year um, of postdoctoral work with Arthur Kleinman at Harvard and before returning here to Oxford. So that was kind of a transitional point for me in thinking about kind of this nitty-gritty research of primary health care delivery. And it's really the narrative arc that ties um, these pieces together, that connects the upper level health policy kind of issues down to the lived realities of what being on the receiving end of um, health intervention and health policies is really like. 
So that brings us to my current research um, here in Oxford. Um, while I continue to do research in Guatemala, I um, had the good fortune to start a new project here um, that is called Autopathographies. So um, let me kind of take you now to what is an autopathography. So these are book-length illness narratives that are self-written, written by the person who experienced um, the illness or condition. So those of you can maybe harken back to some of our reading lists on the course here, um, Robert Murphy's The Body Silent would be a really clear example. And for us, um, the double pleasure of having, it, um, been, having been written by an anthropologist. We also see some examples that are really kind of prevalent in pop culture and in um, the wider liter literary world. Here in the UK, the John Diamond C. Um, Cowards Get Cancer 2 was very, very popular. And also the um, Elizabeth Wurzel's Prozac Nation, which, which then became um, a major motion picture. So it's kind of amazing, I think, for us as students of medical anthropology to think, well, you know, what's this trajectory of someone writing an illness narrative and that it actually becomes so salient and popular within our wider culture that it becomes a major release movie. So um, these autopathographies, the book-length works, really represent uh, a growing genre in, uh, in literature. Um, as I said, they're really prominent on bestseller lists. Um, if you do a kind of current Amazon search just to try to get a, a scope of how many of these types of books are out there, um, it's, a, it's about 730 at the moment. It kind of fluctuates a bit, but a huge, huge number of volumes that we're looking at here. Um, for my project, I am working with a collection of these books that's a subset, um, which has been called the Patient's Tales Collection. And the genesis of that collection is basically kind of stemming from the interest of a clinician here in Oxford. He is based in the primary health care department and the Department of Clinical Pharmacology, Jeffrey Aronson. And he, out of his own interest, began collecting these books and kind of was surprised as a clinician to see how widespread they were that kind of like pulling a string on a sweater, that once you start, it just kind of kept unraveling and kept coming, and he found more and more. So he has collected um, over 300 volumes that we now currently house in the primary health care department here in Oxford. And so my job has been to come in and to think of how, from a medical anthropology perspective, we can make sense of these books and how they can inform um, our understanding of patient health experiences. Um, one of the larger research groups within the primary health care department here in Oxford is called the Health Experiences Research Group. Um, there was mention made of it yesterday, so some of you may be familiar with it already. Um, their role has been to conduct extensive um, interviewing of patients with a variety of different conditions. I think there are up to over 30 conditions that are listed on their website, which is Health Talk Online. And they, um, it's essentially elicitation of illness narratives, and then they um, post videos and um, transcripts of those 
interviews online for other patients and care providers to access to be able to understand what the patient experience of that particular condition is. Um, they have also, as a research group, conducted extensive um, investigations into online health resources. Um, of course, we're living in the era of WebMD, right? And every time somebody gets a migraine or any kind of ailment, we're digging into the online health information. And so they've really been querying what is the role of the internet on um, in sharing health experiences and in understanding kind of our physio physical symptoms and our interpretation of those within um, within our societies. So my contention is that with the huge popularity of autopathographies as literature in our society, that they've actually been ignored um, by uh, health experience researchers um, in light of favoring these internet resources. So um, my position is that these books are still very relevant. They're reaching wide audiences and that we must um, incorporate them into our understanding of patient experiences. This is just um, kind of a little histogram to give you an idea of the kind of time scale of publication across the patient's tales collection. So interestingly, we really see this huge jump in publication rates starting kind of in the 70s, but really in the 80s, we see this massive boost, which I think is also interesting because that sort of parallels, particularly in the 90s and beyond, the rise of sharing through web-based media. <coughs> okay, so why has the so-called cyclic captured public attention? Well, with a book-length illness narrative, we really get a sense of the illness experience situated in the wider life course. Um, in a blog post or an internet chat room, the focus tends to be on conditions, treatments, um, specific symptoms, and within an illness narrative, it's usually contextualized in how the illness is situated in that person's life history. And it also presents sort of a very familiar narrative arc to us. Um, the literature that we're investigating is limited to uh, books available on the English-speaking market. So we get these very um, kind of stereotypical, um, dramatic storylines, sort of the beginning of the illness, the symptoms, the sort of sense of foreboding, the crisis point of treatment, and then some kind of resolution, whether it's kind of becoming well or making peace with the, the illness or the condition on a chronic level or even um, a more degenerative condition. So how does this contrast to kind of maybe some online resources and how people view um, the books versus the quality of online information? And I, I think that many people see books as more valid and trusted sources of information because they have in some way been vetted by a publisher. They've been shaped. I think um, within the wider public, perhaps, something that's between two covers they um, feel has been fact-checked and, and somehow 
that he made real or made been substantiated. This is in fact not the case. And chatting with publishers a bit um, so far in their research, um, you know, they don't fact check. They just sort of hit print in many cases or help shape the narrative in a more pleasing way and then hit print. So um, that sort of dialogue between what's seen as trusted and real versus um, kind of a pleasing story uh, or narrative is something that um, this research is investigating. Um, and of course, these autopathographies are sometimes written by um, academics like Robert, uh, Robert Murphy or other writers who are already well-known to the population, as well as celebrities. And the celebrity books really get a lot of public attention. Um, of course, we probably are familiar with the Michael J. Fox. Um, he's actually written two books now about his um, kind of life with Parkinson's disease. And I've been doing some secondary analysis of um, neurodegenerative conditions based on the patient interview transcripts held by the Health Experiences Research Group and their online resources. And it's really interesting that patients are quite savvy about understanding that celebrity brings attention and funding to conditions. And so a, a patient with Parkinson's actually said, gosh, I wish we had a better celebrity than Michael J. Fox. <laughs> so I thought, well, okay, we're pretty savvy about understanding how um, attention and public pressure can move kind of funding and public policy forward. <laughs> okay, so what would be the motivation for writing an autopathography? What inspires someone to sit down and write an entire book-length account of their own illness? Um, of course, drawing it back to our Madame Leangaro um, reading, we know that the act of telling a story as well as listening to or reading a story is a constructive process. So it's my contention that by writing an autopathography, um, the author is able to reclaim the narrative of their own illness, and in many cases, the narrative of their own life course. Um, many people experience feelings of loss of power during an illness occasion, particularly a, a, a very serious one that would prompt the writing of an autopathography. So it's a way to tell the story in their own terms, to, uh, to, to omit um, pieces of information, to exaggerate others. Um, of course, there are other reasons why one might um, write an autopathography to make money, um, to raise awareness, to push public policy and funding forward, and also to reduce stigma and increase understanding of a particular um, illness condition. Um, and throughout kind of my consideration of these books, I continue to say, well, these aren't just average patients that are writing these books. Everyone doesn't write an autopathography. So it's really a self-selecting group of patients and trying to understand what that might mean um, for the public's understanding of patient experiences is, is very essential. Um, so as part of my project, I am constructing a database of, um, of the autopathographies that are currently housed in the patient's tales collection. Um, and so I've developed a coding schema that's very much informed by medical anthropology theory. And so I'll just kind of quickly um, introduce the topics that are, are covered. Of course, there's some basic narrative analysis of the structure. Um, I'm looking 
for descriptions of health-seeking behaviors in the treatment process, evaluation of treatment and institutions of health care, techniques of transformation, presentation of self, responses from the social network, and the use of metaphor. And so, as I said, um, I'm building these into a coding database, which will allow thematic analysis both within disease conditions, <coughs> excuse me, and also across disease categories, which is something that this kind of database style of handling illness narr narratives is sort of new. Um, we tend to focus on just one type of narrative or one disease category. Um, and it's also going to allow for opportunities for secondary research for other um, researchers to access the database, which will be made publicly available, to contribute to it and to also draw on and do further research. Okay, so understanding um, what what does this mean? Kind of the so what? You're like we can build a database and we can um, kind of continue to push the kind of theoretical concept of illness narratives ahead. But what does it mean for public health practice and uh, the delivery of uh, primary health care services? So within the uh, UK health system, the NHS has prioritized what they're calling patient experience. And this is the kind of stream that the health experience research group um, here in Oxford is drawing on. And it's becoming kind of a, I hesitate to say buzzword, but at the moment it's a, a hot topic within the NHS, and they very much want to push funding into understanding patient experience. And so autopathography must be a part of that. <coughs> and um, kind of further, what can autopathography actually contribute to the patient experience um, as people go through illness conditions? Um, First of all, I think that they can be used successfully by patients and their carers to um, discuss and understand their own illness and the kind of phases of, of treatment and processing uh, its effect on their wider life course. Um, it's also another vehicle to give healthcare providers insight into what it's actually like to be a patient. Um, and there's kind of some, some interesting things that come out of doing secondary analysis of patient um, illness narratives uh, held by the Health Talk Online site. Um, one that I've particularly enjoyed also from a Parkinson's patient is, you know, I've got several books. They're pretty useful, but um, most of them are um, American and you know what Americans are like. Um, <laughs> but there's some things that are, that are helpful from the book. Um, and another that says, you know, the internet is dangerous uh, in, a, in a way because there's so much information out there and it can frighten people. There's one or two very good books that are helpful. So this kind of counterpoint of information um, as, a, as a stream and a different way of engaging with information through a written text versus the perhaps information overload that can come through online resources is sought after by patients. Um, there, this is not to say that there aren't limitations to autopathographies and what they can contribute to the patient experience uh, research. Um, of course, they're a synchronic form of communication. Someone has written them at a certain point in their life and in their illness course, and it doesn't open a two-way dialogue between 
the the reader and the author in the way the same way that a chat room or a blog online might do. Um, there might also be differential access to the books, although I have argued that maybe this is actually less so than online resources, particularly when we think about older populations or um, folks with different access to um, internet resources. Um, and also, of course, um, the autopathographies as a resource aren't medically vetted information, and they're typically not intended to pack to pass along, well, you know, this is the course of treatment I took and the specifics and this is exactly what you should do. It's presenting a different side of information. Um, but that's something that's different from, again, online resources where many people do actually talk about the nitty-gritty details of their treatment course. Okay, so what are the next steps for this patient tales collection? So my kind of forthcoming task is to try to actually measure the impact of autopathographies, whether they shape health-seeking behaviors or whether they have any impact on patient satisfaction with their own um, health experience in navigating through the health system. Um, also, our goal is to increase public access to these types of resources um, to create a web collection of a listing of these resources and we'll link this collection to the existing Health Talk Online um, site, which is hosted by the primary care department. Um, and also, as I mentioned, promoting further secondary analysis by other researchers through making our coding and data um, available online. So that is kind of the trajectory that I'm taking with the illness narratives research. So again, it's, you get the sense of something that can seem quite theoretical when we talk about it in class and classrooms here, it can, can really be applied to actual health situations and um, health problems. So that's, that's my work with patient experiences. I'll leave it there.